public sector intervention is important and helpful, but there's nothing like harnessing the power of markets to drive change, changing industries that are employing people in the developing world to be more dignified and harness markets where the global north is the primary buyer, where we have so much purchasing power. Welcome back to season four of The Multiplier Effect. This is episode four, and as we are continuing to share how companies at Endeavor are building a stronger, more future-ready supply chain, I spoke with a very inspiring founder out of our Endeavor Louisville office, Jane Morris, founder and CEO of To The Market. Let me share a few quick stats with you. Nine out of 10 respondents among 28 countries would like to see more sustainable and equitable products in the post-pandemic market. 60% of consumers are ready to change their purchasing behavior to minimize their environmental footprint. 71% of respondents said they would be willing to change their shopping habits for brands that provide traceability. And 68% of consumers expect companies to step in to address societal issues from economic inequality to gender rights at work. 6% of today's corporations have full supply chain visibility. This means it's nearly impossible for enterprise companies to source ethical manufacturers and ensure retail sustainability. To the Market is providing an incredible untapped production capacity around the world, particularly in the artisan industry. It's the second largest economy in the developing world behind agriculture, but is largely disconnected from the supply chains of traditional retailers and corporations. Through To The Market's work with both consumers and makers, they take steps towards protecting our planet, empowering people through the dignity of work via sustainable, transparent, and ethical production. Their proprietary data and inventory of suppliers ensures big players can provide a more sustainable supply chain. You've seen To The Market in Forbes, Fortune, Bloomberg, Vogue Business, and Entrepreneur. But in this episode, Jane shares how their clients like Bloomingdale's, Target, Macy's, and MasterCard are bought into the mission of a sustainable supply chain as not just a nice to have, but a need to have. Let's dive in. Well, I am so excited to speak with our guest today, Jane Morris, founder of To The Market. Um, to The Market democratizes access to the global supply chain so that non-traditional makers who operate ethical and sustainable manufacturing can participate more fully. Their technology provides companies with quantifiable information on the impact to support corporate and social responsibility agendas without sacrificing speed, innovation, or digitization. Jane, this is such important work. Um, and such an important topic for rethinking supply chains. So I really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to chat. You have a very inspiring story that I would love for you to share with our listeners. Talk to us about your career and how that has led you on the path to launching to the market. Well, I started my career um, in the public sector. Um, I worked in counterterrorism at the U.S. Department of State. And my expertise was uh, helping women fight terrorism. And I was spending time uh, working with women in very developing economies and particularly Afghanistan. And the primary takeaway I had from the work I was doing was that public sector intervention is important and, and helpful, but there's nothing like harnessing the power of markets to drive change. And the, the change that I was really interested in is how can we really think about 
changing industries that are employing people in the developing world to be more dignified um, and, and to really particularly, you know, harness markets where the global north is the primary buyer, um, where mm -hmm. we have so much purchasing power. So I had no idea what that would look like, um, you know, had thought I would be in national security forever and ever amen. And so did an MBA at Columbia while I was still at the State Department. Um, played with different business models, went to then go work on human trafficking and labor exploitation, where I got really interested in retail manufacturing. Um, retail manufacturing, um, you know, not necessarily something that's top of mind um, for everybody, but I was super surprised to find that it's actually one of the largest economies in the developing world. And it's one that is incredibly problematic. It's problematic operationally, uh, meaning it's an incredibly opaque, opaque industry, despite the fact that the TAM is in the trillions. It is an industry that is one of the most polluting in the world. So from an environmental standpoint, very difficult and socially rife with exploitation. And so it is broken, you know, at multiple points. And as entrepreneurs, I think we're called to try to address what's broken and try to solve or, yeah. you know, contribute to solutions of things that are broken. And I felt so strongly that retail manufacturing could be aligned more closely with other industries like the food and beverage industry, where mm -hmm. we have really made progress in having access to more ethical and sustainable food and beverage product because of investments made in the, the agriculture supply chain. Yeah. And also, you know, not as much, but certainly making major progress in the beauty industry. Um, major investments have been made over the last 10 years to give us more organic product, um, less sort of chemically heavy product, um, more uh, animal, you know, testing um, friendly product. And I felt so strongly that retail manufacturing was, was going to follow the same path of moving to a more ethical and sustainable model, but needed a solution to make that happen on the supply chain side. Yeah, I love it. And I know you're from Texas. I'm also from Texas. And I wanted right. to talk about kind of the ag side of things. You know, you talk about um, on one of my favorite podcasts, Middle Tech, about Whole Foods and its perception when it was first launched mm -hmm. being this like super granola hippie grocery store and how now today it's owned by Amazon. And you're just alluding to the implications of this movement and how we've seen ag championing this ethical and sustainable farming for quite some time, but how there's been this like really slow adoption rate and even education of how this applies to other industries. Are there specific reasons for that, that you can kind of dive deeper into? There's been such a slow adoption around this. Is it truly just supply chain? So I think retail has been slower than beauty and which has been slower than food and beverage because, and this is just a theory, um, I think we as humans focused, focus most closely on things that impact us most. So food and beverage goes in our bodies. And right. so we are most concerned with it. And so that means that I think we are most interested in the impact that the, you know, 
food and beverage product that maybe wasn't as ethical and as sustainably grown as we would like. That's why I think there was energy there um, before anything else. Beauty following, I think it's because it goes on our body and it's so deeply absorbed by our body. That's the whole point. Mm -hmm. And so again, it's sort of getting to this case study of like, it's much closer to us. And so it has a bigger impact on us. And so we care more. And so we focus more. Retail, I think is sort of right behind beauty because it's still things we're putting on our body. Yes, it doesn't have the same absorbing quality as a, you know, a face mask, but right. it's still, you know, when we put a little baby in a onesie that's covered in, you know, chemical dyes, yeah. people are thinking a lot, lot more about the implications of that. And I think, you know, many of us are thinking more and more about the implications, even as adults on the fabrications that we're putting on our body, that we're sitting in, that we're wearing all day, that we're washing, that like, you know, are, we're sleeping on. I mean, these are all, um, this is the like environment that we have created for ourselves, these little habitats in our houses. And it's like, what habitat have we created? Is it one that is not only reflective of, um, materials and processes that are good for us and good for the planet but is it also product that we're putting in our life in our personal orbits that is full of joy and you know value add or had a really difficult journey because there was suffering associated with the production of it Right. It sounds like, I mean, it's, it's almost like a hierarchy of needs commentary. Totally. Like, it's a study of hierarchy of 100%. needs. Yeah. Totally. Why, why is that always right? <laughs> um, but it is. Because we are ego-centered <laughs> ego creatures. <laughs> that, that, is, that is very true. Um, so let's talk about how you evaluate the needs of these, you know, enterprise clients that you guys have. So to the market shared that 6% of today's corporations have full supply chain visibility as you're sourcing ethical manufacturers for these clients, what does this process look like? Are they mostly coming to you for your expertise in vetting and onboarding these makers? Like walk us through what that process looks like. We focus on servicing enterprise clients. So large scale, you know, fortune thousand companies, although we love companies and nonprofit profits of all shapes and size. It just, we typically focus on selling to enterprise clients. Um, These enterprise clients often have a deep desire to have a de-risked supply chain and one that is more aligned with the publicly espoused values that their C-suite states. However, to execute on this operationally, it is very, very difficult. And oftentimes these enterprises are operating with reduced resources, um, both financially and from a personnel standpoint, may not have the expertise as to what they should be looking for and identifying what is an ethical and sustainable supplier. And even if they perhaps have the expertise, again, it gets back to bandwidth. They might not have the time. Um, They may not have the, the time to work with them versus their existing vendors. I mean, it's just uh, it's it's quite challenging um, to get enterprises to focus on this end, uh, on this issue, um, and they they need someone like to the market to help them do it. Um, so what do we do? What to the market has done is we have developed a proprietary vetting system that allows us to look at a combination of the social footprint of a 
maker. That's the word we use for factories, for artisan groups, for workshops, et cetera. F the environmental footprint of a maker. And just as importantly, the business performance of a maker. And we combine the data that we collect on those three pieces to actually create a vendor scorecard that is like a credit score, which is actually a numerical value that is reflective of our data inputs, just like a credit score, that is dynamic based off of certain inputs, whether it be social, environmental, or business performance related. That then gives to the market deep expertise in being able to decipher who is the best of as it relates to suppliers and who is a good fit for our enterprise clients based off of the needs that they express to us. And that probably helps to inform and improve their margins in a variety of different ways. Something that I was kind of thinking through, unfortunately, historically, I think that, you know, ethical production and sustainability have a reputation of being almost elitist or in that luxury category. We recently had Ryan Lutberger, uh, the founder and CEO of Clean Colt on the show. And mm -hmm. he was mentioning how in the cleaning supply industry, there has been this cost stigma around purchasing eco-friendly products. And for context, CleanCult partners with the Carbon Fund. And I shared my excitement for that because I think what they're doing by participating in the Carbon Fund is they're controlling the narrative of their brand by acting preemptively. And as you're in the B2B space of supporting and facilitating education to these enterprise companies, you're coming alongside those who maybe have not historically prioritized sustainability as a key differentiating factor of their companies. So maybe to that point, how are you helping to educate these specific individuals that are in this more B2B, almost the marketing methodology that you're attributing to educating those prospective clients into helping to improve those margins? Well, I think that there, you know, there's a couple things that are very helpful for us as it relates to B2B clients. So one is the fact that um, most buyers um, at retail and brand orgs um, tend to be in the millennial and Gen Z demographic who are highly attuned to the sort of bigger value equation associated with a product. Whereas maybe previously there are generations that were had a narrow focus of what value meant and it typically was just low cost. Millennials and Gen Z tend to value value uh, a product with a more holistic view where it not only is looking at the cost of it, but it's also looking at, does it align with my values? Do I feel like it is advancing my view of the world? Um, is it having a positive or neutral or negative, you know, social environmental impact? And not to say that, you know, every company um, is, is coming out and, um, you know, sort of lining up on here are my political beliefs and you're either with me or you're not. What I mean by that is it's just a, uh, a, a more holistic sort of view of the cost of a good um, that takes into account more inputs um, that millennials and Gen Z are focused on than perhaps previous generations. So because of that, we are already at a favorable position in that there is desire to move away from just the lowest cost option to help move their retail org or their brand 
to a place where they fundamentally believe it should be because they know that that's what their generation wants, which, oh, by the way, Gen Z and millennials are the largest cohort of purchasing power in the history of the world collectively and have such a distinct view as to what is important to them. And so, you know, I always um, say to someone who says, well, I don't think ESG is in fact important to them. I always have to point back to the data um, because what the data says is it absolutely is for these communities of buyers and these communities being these generations of buyers and they're the future. So you either want to attract and retain future buyers or you don't. And so, I mean, in that respect, we're, we are at a huge advantage that, that we're not having to fight that much of an uphill battle as it relates to the demographic of people that we're selling into. I think what makes what we do easier for them to say yes is that we provide quantitative data associated with why buying a product through to the market supply chain has actually an environmental and social impact that is superior to conventional supply chains. So if a client buys an organic cotton t-shirt that we make at a certified organic cotton factory through to the market supply chain solution, we can actually tell that client, hey, instead of you making at a this t-shirt at a conventional factory of conventional cotton, you saved this many liters of water, this many kilowatts of energy, this many um, fair wages were created. I mean, it's, it is quantitative data that can then be reported back to the C-suite, to the, the street, to employees um, that actually give people real answers as to why making these purchasing decisions is in fact better for people better for the planet. Yeah, that makes sense. When we think about as you're educating the value and importance of evaluating the origin of each good, right? I think about the impact that this is having on the makers and where these makers are coming from. So from a mere geography perspective and cultural perspective, how is this impacting the growth and potential financial autonomy for makers in these various regions? And how is that impacting from a cultural implication? standpoint, maybe even visibility for female founders or female makers that you partner with? I totally, I totally hear you. So um, retail manufacturing is a, uh, one of the largest economies in the developing world. And it's an economy that is dominated by women in the workforce. So women are the majority of garment workers. They're the majority of line workers at factories that are making apparel products whether that factory is ethical or not. So because of that, if you can help to advance the industry to make it more ethical and more sustainable, you are in turn allowing more women to have access to dignified work, safe work, sustainable work that they can you know, feel like they have enough to Uh, take care of themselves, take care of their children. Um, It is, again, something that with the connectivity that we enjoy 
in today's world, the idea that in a black box, somebody could be exploited to create some fashion top for me to wear out on a Friday night is becoming harder and harder for people to ignore. We are just becoming so deeply connected to one another through technology. And because of that, that is a dying model. Not only is it a dying model because consumers are saying, no more, I can't be a part of this. But just as importantly, investors are saying no more. Legislation is saying no more. Employees are saying, I don't want to work here. I don't want to work at an organization that operates like that. And so all of these all of these variables are combined to create extreme pressure on organizations to rethink their sourcing and manufacturing strategy to be more ethical and sustainable. And to be clear, I fundamentally believe in the power of markets. All of these are market forces at play. Mm -hmm. And it, it doesn't matter if you believe in ESG or not. The bottom line is the market forces are rewarding ESG. Right. So regardless of how your heart feels, <laughs> if you care about your balance sheet, you got to look at these issues. If you care right. about attracting talent, you've got to look at these issues. If you want people to hold your stock, you've got to look at these issues, whether you believe in them or not. Mm-hmm. Well said, very well said. Um, and I think that's a great transition into some more light segments that we have as part of all of our episodes. First being our call me crazy moment. The founder of Endeavor, Linda Rotenberg has always said, call me crazy, crazy is a compliment. So we like to ask each guest on our show, what has been your call me crazy moment? Oh man. I mean, I feel like, um, Anytime I can go up to anybody like that, I admire that I want to sell to, like that happens to be in my orbit, like it's happening. Um, so whether it's at a conference and it's like a very famous person, I mean, for example, I was at an, an Endeavor gala and Richard Branson was there. And I was like, oh, I'll find Richard. And I did. I found Richard and we sold to Virgin. <laughs> Um, I, I don't know if it was just through that, but it was certainly a touch point. Um, so I would say, you know, a crazy moment is that uh, I fundamentally believe in what we're doing. And so I'm happy to tap, tap, tap people on the shoulder um, and tell them all about it if they happen to be victims of being in a public space with me. Yeah, call you crazy, but to the market is uh, worth being crazy for, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> Um, okay. And then last name, a company and CEO that most inspires you. So I, um, I really, he's not currently, I think, uh, in this role, but Howard Schultz at Starbucks, I so deeply admire, um, what Starbucks has done to bring direct trade coffee to more people, um, particularly in the U S where we had become very, um, focused on, uh, types of coffee that were, um, you know, pretty industrially grown and um, could be a lot better. And in Starbucks has educated an entire, you know, 
population of people on what it means to be single source or, you know, dark or light roast or, um, you know, any of the sort of pieces that, that they've brought to light. And, and I really, you know, I think um, Howard Schultz has, has led the way in that. So huge, huge respect for him. Yeah, he's definitely an inspiration to myself as well. What are you reading or listening to right now? So I always have Think and Grow Rich, like on my on my short list. Um, Napoleon Hill, uh, that book, uh, you know, I, I wrote a book by The Change You Want to See. It uh, was published by Penguin Random House. The imprint was uh, called Tarcher Perigee. Think and Grow Rich is the same imprint. Um, printed meaning by the same part of Penguin Random House as my book. And I, that was always Amazing. so special. I always looked up to Think and Grow Rich and thought it was such an important book. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, I always just love that because um, it feels super special and uh, connected. And it just has like endlessly important lessons that I, I come back to over and over again. Well, we'll definitely put a link to both books in our show notes. Thank so you. listeners be looking out for that and click on over uh, to make a buy. Um, what's some of the best business advice you've ever received? I mean, I think uh, a lot of the business advice that I've benefited most from has been around failure. Um, and I think I've personally benefited from it so much because I've been so focused on um, working hard and having a uh, linear output because of my hard work that when I became an entrepreneur and realized that I could work endlessly hard and still get endless nose, um, that I had to build scar tissue and I needed to learn that it was normal to be rejected on a constant basis. Um, does it make it, you know, like I have zero emotional connectivity to it. No, like there's certainly times where an investor will tell me no and I don't care at all. And then there's other times where they say no, where I just fundamentally disagree with the reasons that they're sharing. And it's very difficult for me to process. But I would say that the, the scar tissue I've developed because of the depth of no's that you hear from clients, from people you try to recruit, and you know, most importantly from investors, I think hearing from other entrepreneurs, my husband in particular, has really made me feel like I'm still a really competent entrepreneur. Um, it's not that I'm bad at fundraising or sales or recruiting. It's that this failure is just such an inevitable and consistent part of starting anything worthwhile. Yeah, that's very, very good advice. And I think something that especially our entrepreneurs that we engage with every day at Endeavor could use. So thank you for sharing that. Jane, where can we find To The Market online? So you can join us at tothemarket.com. Um, you can find us on Instagram at Let's Go TTM, um, on Twitter at Let's Go TTM. Um, and uh, we, you know, love, love for you to follow our journey. Awesome. Well, we definitely will. We already are here at Endeavor, um, but we'll encourage our listeners to give you guys a follow and check you out online. Uh, you're doing excellent work and certainly rethinking supply chains. So we appreciate you being here. Thank you, Jessica. Special thanks to Jane for joining us on the show today. For more information about this episode and to find out where you can buy Jane's book, Buy the Change You Want to See, 
head to the multiplieraffectpodcast.org. See you next week.